welcome to the Change Alchemist podcast, where I'll be talking to thought leaders, technologists, innovators, and leaders who will share their insights on how AI, technology, and new paradigms are shaping our future of work and how we can prepare to face the new world ahead of us. It's my pleasure to be speaking with Dr. Raj Raghunathan, who has a unique perspective on happiness. I first came across Dr. Raj um, on Coursera when I took his class um, on happiness. Uh, to give you a background, uh, Dr. Raj Raghunathan is a professor of marketing at the McComb School of Business at uh, the U University of Texas, Austin. He relies on themes from psychology, behavioral science, decision theory, and marketing to explain consumption behavior. He also studies the impact that people's judgments and decisions have on their own happiness and fulfillment. Based on his research, he teaches a very successful online course on Coursera on happiness, uh, named A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment. He's also a best-selling um, author of a book named Happy Smarts. With that, I'd like to ask Dr. Raj to tell, tell us a little bit about his journey um, and how, uh, how he came up with this concept. So over to you, Dr. Raj. Yeah, thank you very much, Shobhana. It's a pleasure uh, to be here on this podcast as well. Thank you for inviting me. So with regard to your question on my journey, uh, so it's been an unusual journey in the sense that usually uh, business school professors don't really teach a class on happiness. And here I am in the business school um, talking about the topic and uh, to some extent uh, also uh, kind of uh, weaving in themes from uh, philosophy uh, and religion and spirituality into my courses. So it's a very unusual thing and people do do a little bit of a double take when they realize that I'm teaching a class on happiness in the business school. And the short story of the journey is that I just realized uh, maybe about 10, 12 years back that uh, happiness is a very, very important thing. And uh, most of us uh, recognize that it's important. And I think that most of us feel that that is the purview of our personal life, not uh, the purview of our work life or of our educational life. And uh, we just go along with that assumption. But I felt that, uh, look, at the end of the day, why do you want to be a great marketer? Why do you want to be a great software engineer? Why do you want to be uh, a good you know, interviewer on pod podcasts? Because it, it makes your life more meaningful, more fulfilling, more happy. Um, and if in the end, after all this education, you're not happy yourself or you're not enhancing the happiness of your fellow human beings, then I thought something was missing in the picture. And I thought that something needed to be done about it and that the topic of happiness needs to be addressed a little more directly. Otherwise, the danger is that the people who are really interested in happiness go to people who are less qualified than university professors to talk about it. You know, it could be charlatans, it could be fanatics, it could be fundamentalists and so mm -hmm. on. Uh, not to say that religious, spiritual traditions are not good. I, I, I do think that there's a lot of value in them, but I also think that science can add a lot to it. And so that's how I put this course together about you know 10 years back now. And uh, it's taken on a life of its own uh, in a way that I'm not complaining. I'm very happy about it. It yeah. snowballed out of control, so to speak. Um, I have a book on it, as you mentioned. I have two online courses actually with close to 400,000 students uh, across the two of them around the world taking it and lots of other initiatives. I, I teach it at the McComb School of Business, I teach it at the Indian School of Business, and I might be teaching it at a few more places in the future as well. Oh, fabulous. 
So um, I think you have, you made a pretty controversial comment in one of the classes I think you taught, which was, if you're that smart, why aren't you um, that happy, right? So kind of want to talk a little bit about uh, how smartness and happiness may not be correlated and how we have to look at it um, in a different, from a different perspective. Yeah, so my book is called that. If you're so smart, why aren't you happy? I have a couple of uh, talks, one TED talk that is also titled that. Um, and the idea behind it is that everybody recognizes that uh, the, the reason we do the things we do is because we want to lead a happier life, more fulfilling life. And you would think that smart people are very good at achieving their goals. You know, they're after all smart and they are very good at figuring out, okay, what's the best way to get from point A to point B? Uh, if I want happiness, uh, you would um, probably guess that the smarter you are, the chances are greater that you would end up being happier just because you're, you're good at figuring things out, right? That's the definition of smartness. Uh, but in fact, what we find is that um, there is not a whole lot of correlation between smartness and happiness. Um, so uh, at least smartness defined in, in terms of conventional IQ and academic success terms. Um, and what we find is that uh, some of the things that make you smart right? For example, smart people are very good at thinking through problems, okay? Uh, so uh, that quality of thinking through problems might in fact come in the way of your happiness. You might overthink, right? Uh, you might get what I call mind addicted and uh, not listen as much to your instincts, not listen as much to your emotions, and perhaps even get into analysis paralysis and uh, what some of the researchers call a maximizer mindset, where you're constantly thinking about how can I improve this situation even further? Mm -hmm. Okay, and sometimes that's not the right thing to do. If you're on vacation, for example, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you're constantly wondering, okay, well, you know, maybe this is not the best room, maybe there's an even better room, and you're at a restaurant, you're having a meal, and you're saying, okay, maybe there's another restaurant that is even better. It's the equivalent of, you know, when you're sitting down in the evening, and you're constantly changing your TV channels, wondering if there is something else even better, mm -hmm. right? That's not a very good way to be if you want to be happy. Now, even though it could potentially lead to smartness, uh, it's not a very good thing for happiness. And so um, that is the short summary of it. And there's lots of other qualities too. I think that smart, especially successful people tend to be more control seeking. Um, they tend to uh, put themselves first often uh, as opposed to their relationships. Uh, they tend to... Um, also seek superiority over other people. They probably tend to be um, more vigilant and untrusting of others, um, you know, and so on. So all of these qualities, while they might be correlated, uh, correlated with um, being smart and successful, aren't necessarily good for your happiness. So uh, it's interesting you mentioned that because I think a lot of the hypervigilance or sort of being um, somewhat paranoid and, and competitive even, comes from a scarcity mindset, right? And that's one of the things you talk about in your uh, sort of theory on happiness. So maybe you could talk about what happiness means, what are the aspects of happiness, and maybe go into the abundance mindset, which you talk about. Sure, yeah, that's a broad question. You're covering a lot of ground there. So let me kind of talk about the first aspect of it, what happiness means. Um, so uh, most people associate happiness with not just pleasure, it turns out, okay? Uh, which is obviously fleeting and short-lived, uh, but also with uh, longer lasting, more uh, deeper emotions, if you will, okay? So things like love and joy and hope and awe and, and so on. It turns out with human beings, um, we don't 
necessarily only seek pleasure or positive emotions. We also sometimes seek challenges. We sometimes seek to do the right thing. We sometimes seek to uh, help other people out, even if it comes at a cost to our own positive emotions and pleasure. And I would include those kinds of activities under the umbrella of happiness too. You know, okay. if you want to use a different word for, to refer to those, um, the satisfaction, for example, of uh, helping another person out, for example, feeding your own child, right? Um, uh, the samosa, <laughs> you know, let me give you an example. You know, once my son and I were caught in an airport mm -hmm. and it was uh, 3 a.m. and uh, we were both really hungry and the flight had gotten canceled a couple of times, which is why we were there at that time. And, um, you know, so I went around looking for food and there was one cafeteria open at that time with just exactly one samosa left. And um, so as a parent, if you're in this situation, what would you do? You're hungry, your child is hungry. Would you rather eat the samosa yourself and make yourself quote unquote happier, right? Um, you're, you're kind of lowering your dissatisfaction uh, from the hunger. Or would you rather feed the child uh, and feel happy at a higher level, so to speak, even though you're prolonging your hunger, um, you're doing something that's more aligned with your value of being a good parent or seeing happy, getting happiness from seeing your son happy, you know, child being happy. So. That's in fact what I did, and it wouldn't surprise uh, parents, right? I mean, almost every parent in the world would do that. And so that is a meaningful thing to do. You know, you could call that a meaningful thing to do, even though it prolongs your displeasure, maybe prolongs your unhappiness at the level of uh, positive emotions. It, it is more happiness inducing at the level of your um, values or, you know, higher level of your uh, who you want to be, what kind of person you want to be. Uh, you can also think of other examples uh, that are similar in nature. Uh, for example, pulling an all-nighter. It's 7 a.m. in California, so presumably you woke up really early to get ready for this. And uh, for people who are uh, late risers, it's it's uh, it's aversive to wake up so early. Okay, I imagine you're not a you know late riser; you're an early riser. Um, but for people who are like that, it's aversive, and so um, you know you would think that the happiness-maximizing thing is not to wake up, but not necessarily. You know, if you have to wake up to see a beautiful sunrise, for example, you're on vacation, or you have to wake up early to catch a flight so that you can go and, you know, um, make a presentation that you've been preparing for for a long time, then it can actually be a meaningful thing to do. It, it fulfills your purpose in life. I call it purpose. So um, happiness is all of those things, okay? Uh, not just pleasure, not just positivity. It's also satisfaction from meaning and uh, contributing to other people and also doing something that's intrinsically motivating, aligned with who you are. Now, with reference to the abundance mindset, which you brought up some time back, um, it is true that people who are more scarcity oriented tend to exhibit a lot of the negative traits that we talked about a little bit earlier on. Mm -hmm. um, and I characterize the opposite of a scarcity orientation as abundance orientation. And I think that it might... Um, be useful to kind of define each of these terms a little bit. Sure. So a scarcity oriented person believes that uh, life is a zero sum game for them to win. Somebody else has to lose. Okay. And there are lots of like conventional sayings that are aligned with it. There's no such thing as a free lunch, for example, or no pain, no gain, right? Things like that. Um, so uh, a person with a scarcity mindset, because they believe life is a zero sum game and they can't win unless somebody else loses, um, they tend to be more vigilant. They tend to be more untrusting. They tend to hoard things. They tend to be greedy, self-centered. All those cluster of traits go with a scarcity orientation. Mm -hmm. Okay, a person with an abundance mindset, by contrast, believes that we can all win. Okay, in fact, the only way to really win is if the whole, you know, uh, my, my kind of, um, uh, my ecosystem wins. 
okay, uh, whichever ecosystem I'm embedded in. And ultimately, we are all part of the universe, you know? So, uh, so that's how an abundance mindset person looks at things. Um, so they celebrate other people's successes because they know that it's going to come back to affect them as well. And also because they genuinely feel happy for other people. And the in really interesting thing here is, uh, Shobhana, that uh, not only are abundance-oriented people happier, they're also more likely to be successful, okay. particularly in the long run. Um, you know, when you define success in conventional terms, in terms of money, fame, power, status, etc., it is the abundance-oriented people who are likely to be successful as well. Okay, and that's a very, very important to keep in mind. So, you can it almost—it's almost like you could come to the conclusion that it makes strategic sense to adopt the abundance mindset. Okay, so if you're scarcity oriented and you're thinking that that's actually benefiting me, otherwise the world would eat me up, you, you should re-examine that, that thesis. And if you're convinced, then change yourself into an abundance oriented person, which I would strongly urge you to do, not just because it makes you happy, but also because it enhances your chances of success. What are some sort of um, ways in which someone can probably expand their abundance mindset if you're not born happy, for example, a lot mm -hmm. of us have a threshold, I would assume, to be happy or not happy. How, is it nurture or nature? How can you change your happiness quotient? Yeah, so the studies here, the best um, you know, conclusion to which we can come at this point is that it certainly seems to be the case that a lot of your happiness is uh, genetic. Uh, it's already hardwired. Maybe let's say 50% of your happiness is hardwired in you. Um, and uh, the reason we know this is because of uh, these uh, twin studies where the twins got separated at birth and they were monozygotic, so almost identical in terms of the genetic profile. Uh, and because they got separated at birth, they, got, they were raised in entirely different families sometimes. Um, and yet, uh, when you look at their happiness 30, 40 years later, uh, they, they're pretty highly correlated even though they were brought up in entirely different families. One could have been an abusive family, the other a very nurturing one. And yet the differences in the happiness of these twins is not as high as you might expect, given their background. Uh, that's because uh, they, they shared the same genes, okay? So we know that about 50% of your happiness is based off of your genes. So to your question on how do you kind of nurture abundance if you're born unhappy? Uh, I think the very first, I think, milestone is that you need to have the... In, in internal motivation to want to change. No one's going to be able to change you if you don't want to change yourself. <laughs> of course. Okay, okay. You, you probably are aware of this and anybody who's married knows this, okay, uh, really well. So everybody's got to kind of make up their mind that, you know what, I mean, this life isn't good. I haven't been happy. And um, I know that part of it is genetic. I, I like, um, what's her name? Um, the Harry Potter author. <laughs> Forgetting her name now. Uh, Anyway, so she said in a Harvard speech, commencement speech, that there is an expiry date to blame your parents for your problems. There's an expiry date to blame your parents for your problems. And you can kind of extrapolate that to say that there's an expiry date to blame your genetics uh, for your problems. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, of course, you know, if it's genetic, then chances are that you're not going to be able to completely transcend them. Mm -hmm. But I think the attempt should be uh, to do that. You know, just as if you're born really physically thin mm -hmm. and you realize that, you know, being strong is important, mm -hmm. uh, you might want to overcome that by going to the gym or, or, you know, sure. um, working out or whatever. So in a similar way, if you're born unhappy, I think it, it's up to you to kind of change it a little bit at least. And one of the biggest things you can do there is to change your mindset, is to right. make it more abundance oriented. And I have three practices that I'd highly recommend. One is to keep a journal 
uh, every day write in it three good things that happened to me, okay? Uh, in the evening, for example, just before you go to sleep, you pull it out. And you can, of course, do other things. You can recount what happened that day, and it's interesting to read later on, okay? But uh, end the journal with three good things that happened to me, okay? Three, I mean, obviously, if you're writing it every day, it's going to be small good things. Like, for yeah. example, right now it's raining in Austin, and it's been really hot, and this is going to lower the temperature, and the um, grass, the lawns are going to get free water, okay? Um, it could be things like that. Uh, probably will be things like that if you write every day. The second thing that I would recommend is that um, try and hang out with the abundance-oriented people. We're highly social as a species and emotions and values are contagious. And so the more you hang out with abundance-oriented people, the more you absorb by osmosis almost uh, their traits. So, you know, and, and I've discovered that people who are older, you know, grandmother, grandfather types are generally much more abundance oriented. You know, uh, they've realized that, you know, life is short and they've come to the end of it and whatever happened in the past, they've reconciled it and all is forgiven. And now they want to lead. I'm not saying every single grandparent is like that. Some, some end up being crotchety and, you know, <laughs> irritable, but, um, but many of them are like that. So hang out with people who are more abundance oriented. And, and the final thing that I would say is that, um, along the same lines at some level of exposing yourself to abundance-oriented stimuli, um, you know, don't look at the news too much. News tends to be negative, okay? And it tends to kind of um, foster an, uh, a scarcity orientation. So if you can take a news fast, you control how much news you look at rather than the news controlling you. Um, if you can get to that point, maybe one hour, maybe max one and a half hours of news every day, that's enough. You know, you'll be informed enough. You don't need to worry about that. And yet it won't, um, you, you won't have exposed yourself so much to the news that it makes you scarcity oriented. Sure. So you've made a case for um, gross national happiness in some of your work. Um, and I think it's especially important in, in these times with, you know, so in these times of social justice, COVID, uh, people losing jobs. Um, I mean, when people have trouble meeting their ends meet, they're sort of at the bottom end of the Maslow's hierarchy, if you will. Is it still possible for them to be happy? Yeah, it's going to be tough. I don't think it's possible, honestly. Uh, if your basic needs are not being met, um, then you're obviously going to suffer. Uh, now, there might be a few exceptions, you know, the Gandhis of the world or Nelson Mandela's of the world, the Jesus Christ of the world. They may be able to maintain some level of emotional equanimity, if not happiness, even when uh, they don't have access to um, what might be considered basic uh, basic needs, you know, food, clothing, shelter, uh, some level of, you know, access to transportation, medical attention, education, etc. Um, but the vast majority is going to suffer a lot, okay, without access to basic needs. So really, it is the people who are above the poverty line, above um, the level of income that it takes for you to meet your basic needs, uh, who have the luxury to worry about happiness and, and to prioritize it. And they should. And if they did, then what I think they would discover is that their happiness comes from doing something meaningful, contributing to the world, you know, enhancing other people's well-being. If you're overly focused on your own growth and your own achievements and your own progress, um, you'll end up discovering that that is not very conducive for your happiness. And a big reason for that is that you become what Adam Grant calls a taker, if you're mm -hmm. like that, okay? And it's one of the kind of primary qualities of a scarcity orientation is to be a taker. And when you're a taker, one of the big, stories, self-narratives, okay, that you tell yourself is that you're a bit of a beggar, you know, you're going around, you know, getting other people's stuff and putting it into your bowl, 
okay? And uh, by contrast, if you're abundance oriented and you're a giver, then you, you the story, the self-narrative is that you're a king or a queen. You know, you have so much uh, abundance of positivity and kindness and compassion that you're able to overlook your own uh, sort of, you know, life situations and problems in order to help other people out. And that's a very powerful self-narrative. You know, if you don't love yourself, if you don't respect yourself, then you, it's impossible to be happy, you know? So that's the idea is that um, it, it, it's very difficult in these times for people at the lower rung to be happy, okay? But the people who, who do have access to these things can help these people out. And not only would it make them happier, it would obviously also improve the sure. lot of the people below the poverty line. So giving back is important in these times. Absolutely. No, it's, particular, yeah. it's, it's critical in, the, in these times, you know, uh, it's, it's very, very important. So I think that if you, in, back in India, for example, you know, uh, most people have maids and, and things like that. And because of COVID, obviously it's been tough um, to, to bring in the maids into the home because of the risk of being infected. But nevertheless, you know, I do think that it's, it's almost like an obligation or a duty, in my opinion, to, to pay these people at least minimum wages. Maybe you're not paying them the full amount that you were before, but pay them, I don't know, you know, 50%, right? Something so that they can subsist uh, and, and see through these times. And they're not going to become wildly rich with your money, you know, the 50% they're paying. They're barely going to meet their, uh, make their ends meet. And so I think uh, it's very important to do that. And it makes you happy in the, in the process as well. I do. Yeah, it definitely will make you happier because of this self-narrative that I told you about, you know, you're going to feel more uh, expansive, you're going to feel magnanimous, and uh, there's nothing to beat that. That's priceless. That's great. And it's it's not to say poor people aren't, uh, they're not unhappy all the time. It's just that we can help them more and in the process be happy too. Yeah, I, I do think that uh, the poor people, you know, there's some studies on this, uh, aren't as unhappy as we might think they uh, would be or ought to be given their life circumstances. I think what happens is there's something called an empathy gap that happens. When you see a poor person without any money, you know, living in the really shabby quarters or whatever, you kind of, um, uh, when, you, when you imagine being in their situation, okay, you, 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 you come to the conclusion that there's no way that I could do this. You know, I couldn't stomach living in these shabby quarters with broken roofs and uh, and no food, I'd be terribly unhappy. And I'm sure that these people are going to be terribly unhappy too. But the reality is that all of us are just. Sure. Okay? We, we, this hedonic adaptation. People who uh, can't imagine um, a kind of a, a chronic health condition, for example, right? And, you know, somebody who's cancer-free, for example, you know, they're told that somebody has cancer and they're asked to imagine how would you feel if you had cancer? probably say, oh my goodness, you know, that would completely like shake my world. And it, it is true, you know, it might shake your world in the moment, but you'll, you'll adjust to it. You'll eventually adjust to it. And uh, that will be a new reality. And, you know, it's not as if your life will now have no laughter at all or no, you know, moments of, uh, you know, uh, like normal life. It will have those. So that's the thing. I, I think that we adjust. And the other thing is that this is where the abundance mindset um, really comes back into the picture is that even if your life circumstances are defined by abject scarcity, mm -hmm. if you have a narrative that's more abundance oriented, for example, if you feel that, you know what, I trust my neighbors, I trust the world, I trust the universe, I have faith in God, I'm going to get through this, etc. Um, you are going to be happier, um, maybe not happy, but at least equanimous um, than, 
you know you would be if you did not have that abundance mindset so you you sometimes have this kind of uh, almost paradoxical finding where people who are poorer mm-hmm. right are happier sometimes sure. they don't yeah. have to take sleeping pills and antidepressants to stay stay afloat what about where their money is going yeah yeah compared to the rich people mm-hmm. if they have a scarcity mindset you know so uh, at some level the the mindset of abundance is more important as a determinant of your happiness than access to resources so uh, 2020 right has been like this um, really crazy year with many changes covid black lives matter social and racial injustice um and i i feel like we probably almost have to reset our thinking uh, do you feel like this is a good time to pause and think about how we need to evolve our future of work many of us are still working what can we bring to the workforce that that's different in 2021 Uh, from your perspective yeah it's a great question uh, shobhna you know i mean this is probably not going to come as a big surprise to you or to people listening to this at uh, this point in the in the podcast you you've heard my perspective uh, i i think that uh, the prioritization of employee well-being um has been long coming and uh, we have had 50 60 years of research on job satisfaction being an important thing mm-hmm. but job satisfaction has a kind of almost like a cold cognitive component to it and i think that uh, you need to inject a little more warmth into mm-hmm. the picture and really kind of prioritize uh, your employees happiness you know if they're not leading full happy lives you know with a, with a lot of pleasure and positivity and meaning and purpose then um uh, you know it's it's a bit of a shame and i think that you might legitimately argue as a leader that look uh, the employee's happiness is their own business you know we are running a business and they have to come into work um uh, wanting to be productive and being productive and that's what i care about okay you might say that that's that's justified at one level um but i do think that even from a strategic standpoint an organization and a leadership that cares about its employee's happiness is going to benefit uh in terms of profitability and productivity okay so there's some studies that show that the happier your employees are mm-hmm. the higher the chance that you make profits and you're productive and so i th- i think that's a very very important thing it's always been important but i think that that um that kind of arc towards making uh well-being a more uh in in you know a greater focus and prioritizing it as has accelerated if you will because of covid i think that what's happened with the covid outbreak is that we there's a lot of anxiety right i don't need to tell you this a lot of anxiety a lot of stress uh even depression and there's a variety of causes for it i think the biggest cause is the uncertainty you know uh, what is going to happen in the future is, am i going to hold on to my job somehow or am i going to get fired or do i have to take a big pay cut how am i going to pay the bills and so on and uh, there's uh, uncertainty around whether you know i'm i'm, am I going to be relevant anymore in this new world you know where people are working from home and there's you know uh, heavier reliance on the internet and uh, you know uh, virtual meetings and so on so um i i think that it's more critical now than it's ever been for organizations and leaders to really hold their employees hands and reassure them and uh, the the organizations and leaders who manage to do that are the ones who are going to succeed in the post covid world okay covid is not going to last forever obviously okay um but uh, right now uh, the leaders who are not able to kind of um empathize with their employees um and their customers etc 
um, might be able to cut corners and cut costs and, and survive in this phase. Okay, but come later post-COVID, they're not going to be able to thrive as much. And I think that uh, if you can find a way in which you can um, you can kind of hang in there through this period and be supportive, uh, inform your employees of what's going on and be in touch with them and so on, be empathetic. If you can get through this phase of COVID, then those are the companies, in my opinion, that are really going to thrive in the post-COVID world. What are some... Um hacks, if you will, or, or even practices you would, you would recommend from a, from a professional perspective that managers as well as employees can take? I know you've got some ideas. I'd love to uh, sure, yeah. share them. Yeah, uh, Absolutely. So, you know, this goes back to what is the root cause of the anxiety and the stress right now? Okay, it's the uncertainty uh, along many different dimensions. For some people, health uncertainty, if not for themselves, for their close relatives and friends. Um, certainly job-related uncertainty. Okay, that is one cause. And another really big cause of the, uh, well, so much, not so much anxiety, but certainly uh, some kind of stress and, and feeling um, stretched too thin is, uh, and this is particularly true for women, I think, okay, is uh, uh, as you're working from home, you also have kids at home who are not being able to go to school and they're also kind of taking school from home, uh, online education and so on. Uh, there's just too many balls up in the air. You know, they have to make breakfast and then there's no help uh, and they have to go to the meetings and, and then, you know, kids are screaming somewhere in the house, you know, <laughs> there's no alone time. Um, so there is that stress as well. So the more I think um, leaders and organizations can help out their employees on any of these different causes of stress, the happier the employees are going to be and therefore the more grateful they're going to be toward the organization and the higher the levels of brand, uh, not brand, but higher the levels of loyalty towards the organization is going to be and so on. So, so the recommendations really flow from there. You know, the first thing is that keep your employees informed, okay? Maybe even over-inform them and not necessarily through emails that are dense and difficult to read, but, you know, just say as a leader, okay, I'm going to hold a town hall uh, meeting, okay, every Tuesday, for example, from 1 to 2 p.m., okay, and I put it in the calendar, block it off, okay, don't have anything else going on at that time, do come to it if you can, you don't have to, it's optional, but I'll answer any and all questions that you guys have. We don't have access to information with our colleagues as much as we used to in the past, you know, the, the, sure. uh, we used to meet our colleagues at water coolers and corridors and so on and so forth, and, you know, some level of kind of informal exchange of information used to take place, which used to reassure us that, you know, things are going fine, you know, I know what's going on here, Etc. And that uh, informal exchange of, you know, relatively tacit, you know, exchange of information is no longer available to us. Okay, so we're feeling cut out. Yes. Um, and that is a major source of stress. So, so to address that, um, just just keep those lines of communication open. Okay. Um, and, and that's the number one kind of tip I have. Number two, the more you can reassure your employees that they're not going to get fired, okay, if in fact that is the case, right? If they are, some of them have to be fired, then, you know, also that needs to be made transparent, I think, so that people can, even though it's, it's a bitter swill to, uh, pill to swallow at the, at the moment, it at least prepares them for the future and it helps them kind of make a decision on, okay, if I have to seek a job soon, then where should I, you know, uh, where, where should I be sending out feelers, et cetera. So inform people. Um, Try not to fire them, even if it means everybody has to pay, take a little bit of a pay cut. I think that's better than firing people, you know? Um, so do that. 
A third thing, try and help them out with their family situation. You know, different people might have different kinds of constraints. Some people might be feeling totally alone and isolated mm -hmm. because they're single perhaps or uh, geographically separated from their family. Other people might be having the opposite problem, you know, <laughs> too many um, balls up in the air and, and they're spread they're too thin um, in terms of resources. So any help that you can give them, even if it's not actual kind of resource help, even if it's only to hear them out on their troubles and the anxieties that they're facing. So form a support group of sorts within the organization um, of like, you know, people in similar situations. That's another thing that you can do. Okay. Uh, I think ultimately uh, all of these things will take energy from you. Okay. Sure. So as a leader, you have to brace yourself for this period and say that, look, I mean, I'm going to have to work a little bit harder now in a, in a different way. You know, it's not actual kind of, slogging it out and, and pulling all-nighters, I think, as much as it is staying in touch with people and, and addressing their problems, um, but working from home. So the more you can take care of yourself, you know, they say charity begins at home, right? I mean, there's the almost cliched example of how when you're flying on an airplane, uh, the pressure drops, you know, put the mask on yourself first before you help other people out. So take care of your own happiness first. And that really boils down to very, very simple things. You know, it, it boils down to leading a healthy lifestyle get a good six, seven hours of sleep every night. Um, exercise at least a little bit, even if you don't go to the gym. You know, there's lots of these uh, exercise routines available on YouTube with, with your own body weight, right? You don't need any equipment for it. So do those. Um, and also eat well, you know, don't eat junk food. Um, just because you're at home um, doesn't mean that you kind of like, you know, every 15 minutes go and open up a pack of potato chips, right? Take care of yourself. Um, so, that's those are the sort of things. One last thing that I'll say is that, and this is a challenge that I faced myself. You know, I used to have this very clear kind of compartmentalization of personal life at home, geographical separation from my office and my work life in the office. And I would go to office and I would feel like working there. Uh, you know, I just got into that mental space, right? Now I have to work from home. Okay, so I had to literally carve out a space for my office, which is where I'm speaking to you from. It didn't used to exist before the pandemic struck. Uh, and now I've kind of trained myself to get into the work mode here. Okay, so it's very important to stay disciplined. Okay, tell yourself that, look, I mean, just because there are no clear kind of physical boundaries between my personal life and my work life doesn't mean that I can afford to kind of let it all uh, go loose, you know? So um, you have to tell yourself, okay, between 9 a.m., let's say, and 12 noon, I'm going to, you know, protect that period for work. I'm not going to let my uh, other kind of interests, right? Personal life interests. It might be catching up on a documentary or, you know, reading a book or whatever. I'm not going to let those things, surfing the internet, right? Those things interfere and disrupt my work life. I'm going to protect what I call my cream time. You know, this is the time in which I'm most productive. I'm able to think my best. I'm, I'm going to protect it for the sake of work. Okay. And if you do that, then you're going to feel good about yourself. You're going to feel like you've earned the right to indulge later on in the evening uh, with, with other things. You can watch a movie, for example, uh, you know, everyone's saving a little bit of time, not commuting anymore. That's true. So, so, so you can use that spare time to do these other things, but it's very important to stay disciplined um, and, and protect the screen time to do uh, get work done. So perhaps the future of work will evolve to a, to a, to a workplace where there are no boundaries, home is, you know, becomes your workspace and, you know, maybe, maybe people can be remote all the time. I think that's opening up. We are opening up to that possibility. We also have a situation where we have youngsters come into the work, Gen Z, for example, mm -hmm. come into the workplace. So 
I think tying all of this together, I think we, we need a, a common nomenclature, right? Maybe that is happiness. And how do you institute that? And is it, is it cutting down on social media, for example? When I think of um, the younger generation, they're always on their Instagram. They're always checking their, their feeds. Now, do you feel like that's a, a detriment to happiness and product, productivity, definitely, but is it also detrimental to happiness? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that there's quite a bit of work on this, right? Especially for teenagers. Uh, it turns out that the more time you spend on social media, the higher your chances of having de depressive suicidal thoughts. And in fact, the higher the chance that you do take your own life eventually. And, and the reason, big reason for that is pretty simple. You know, when you're on social media, you can't help but compare yourself to other people. Um, even if not in terms of, you know, what you see their life as being like uh, in the photographs that they post, you know, maybe uh, one of the kids in America has their own room with their own laptop and the kid in India doesn't, right? Uh, and you, it's easier to compare yourself. And, and we are prone to making what are called upward comparisons, aspirational comparisons rather, rather than downward comparisons. Okay, that is one big reason. And the other big reason um, is that there's also, uh, it's difficult for you to understand what the nonverbals are uh, when somebody posts something. And so it's more emotional online when you see a message. If you see a mean message, for example, okay, uh, or a message that's ambiguous, I think our, our default tendency is to interpret it in a negative fashion. And people also tend to be more mean online, okay, Thank because it's anonymity, you know, there's a lot more trolling that's going on uh, in, in behind the kind of, you know, when you, when you have the um, cloak of anonymity, uh, you're more likely to say mean things. Um, so for a variety of reasons, I think the more you spend time on social media, the, the higher your chances of depression and so on. Um, you know, you, you started your question with, with a, I think a very valid observation that I think everybody would agree with. I think we were already heading towards uh, a different way of working, uh, more working from home. It makes sense, right? I mean, uh, if you don't have to commute, nobody likes commuting and it's polluting the environment, you know, emitting greenhouse gases. And um, uh, if you can get all, that, all of that work done from home and save time, why not? Okay. I, I think a couple of big negatives to that. One is that you don't interact with people as much. Okay. And we are highly social as a species and we like those informal exchanges. It, it uh, fosters a sense of what I call belonging at work. Uh, connection with other people. Yes. So Absolutely. we need to find a way to kind of get that uh, box ticked, okay, in this working from uh, home kind of a uh, future. Uh, and uh, potentially um, another negative is that uh, now that we don't have to go out, we might lead a more sedentary life, mm -hmm. okay, and a life in which we um, uh, are kind of almost fully absorbed in, in digital devices, okay, which we use for our work. And it might just be tempting to kind of go from work to um, browsing the internet for personal interest reasons and so on. So I think that you need to infuse this life with a lot more physical activity, uh, you know, in a more programmatic fashion because you're not getting to walk as much, say from the garage to the office and so on. So those are some of the kind of negatives, but they can be taken care of. Uh, I think the positives in my opinion outweigh the negatives if you work from home. Yeah. Um, and I think that, one kind of, you know, lens, and again, I'm biased, but nevertheless, one lens that you can look at, look through uh, to, to arrive at the set of things that one ought to do is the happiness lens, okay? So if you measure and track people's happiness over time, 
and um, what you what you will end up with is discovering ways in which working from home of, uh, proffers a certain set of advantages for you to be able to improve your happiness and also comes with a certain set of disadvantages that need to be addressed so that we can remove those or address those so that the happiness uh, can be even higher, okay? So I do think that that's a very, very good lens to use. So you're saying measure your happiness um, on a daily basis, see the activities that you're doing that make you happy, continue to do them or reduce the things that make you unhappy. And yeah, so you can do it at your personal level, uh, and it'd be great if you did it, okay? But I do think that at a societal level as well, uh, either the government or the organization that you work for uh, can do this, and they can either do it this directly or by hiring consultants, right? Um, so there's lots of organizations that will do this for you, that will measure the happiness of your employees, that will uh, come up with suggestions on ways to further improve the happiness of the employees and so on. So uh, I think what's i think uh, not in question what is for sure already happening and is bound to continue to happen is that the way that we work the way that we live is going to change okay um, and in particular i think the the trend is towards working from home yes. towards having flexible hours um, towards having online education for example okay it's all of these things are going to be bigger in the future than they were in the past. I don't think there's much doubt about it. And um, if we can kind of keep track of people's happiness levels in the, during this period of rapid change and identify the set of things that reliably increase people's happiness levels and kind of double down on those and, and also identify the set of things that reliably lower people's happiness levels uh, in, this, uh, in this time of change and try and figure out solutions to those, I think we'd be in a better place in the future. Yeah, the reason I ask is um, a lot of people are um, sort of replacing their personal connections with their social network, if you will, right? And add to that, uh, you know, the influence from other people posting their cooking recipes or what they grew in their backyard. And then you're like, again, I think you're keeping up with the Joneses at a different level. Yeah, yeah. Well, they bake this cake, I can bake this cake. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think they're connecting at a human level. So what you make, what you say makes complete sense. Just going uh, and hiding uh, in your Instagram feed isn't going to solve the problem. I think we've got to take a different um, approach. Maybe use the happiness lens and yeah, yeah, even at a level. Yeah, I do think that looking at it from the standpoint of happiness, you know, what is my everyday happiness, for example, right? If you measure people's happiness on an everyday basis and you also have data on how much time they spend working, how much time they spend exercising, how much time they spend on social media, et cetera, I think what you might discover is that, hey, you know what? Up to a certain point, being on social media is good, maybe about an hour, okay, a day, but beyond it, certainly when you get to four hours of social media, it is... <laughs> it is it is it is detrimental, you know, like hugely detrimental to your happiness. And that's the kind of set of conclusions that we need to come at, is what I'm saying. So people get a dopamine hit, right? When they get a like on their feed, for yeah. example, Facebook or Instagram feed, and, and they, they kind of mistake it for happiness. I think that's part of the problem, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think that that is true for not just social media, but even for lots of extrinsic things. You know, if you get a raise... <laughs> Uh, of salary, you, you get a bit of a rush out of that, okay? And it, it, in that case, it even lasts a little bit longer than, you know, getting a like on Facebook, which will vanish, you know, the, the positivity from that is going to vanish in, in a matter of seconds. But uh, if, if you get a $10,000 pay raise a year, 
okay, when you receive that news, it's going to give you a warm glow. It's going to last maybe even a couple of months when you see that paycheck with a little more extra money, you're going to uh, feel good. But that uh, also, you know, doesn't last forever, right? After two or three months uh, of seeing that pay raise, you suddenly get adapted to it. So there's lots of these things, okay? There's a really good um, uh, research article um, uh, on this general topic, okay? And, and it is, uh, they use the term called medium maximization, medium okay. maximization, okay? Mm -hmm. so, so the idea is that all of these things, extrinsic rewards, do give you a bump in happiness, but that bump in happiness doesn't last for a very long time. And what we end up doing is because perhaps it gives us that temporary boost in happiness, we end up pursuing them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what we truly want is to lead a happier life that's sustainably happy. That's, you know, a life of equanimity and calmness and harmony or whatever. Uh, and uh, we end up chasing these mediums thinking that they're going to give those uh, that what we truly want to us. Okay, because they, they have that quality, you know, in the short term, they do kind of boost that happiness in the short term, they're just not long lasting enough. And so we end up, you know, you so you hear of people who like running around their whole life, you know, being stressed out after money, okay, and they've saved more than enough for certainly for themselves, but even perhaps for a couple of generations, and they died leading a very unhappy life in the pursuit of money, you know, they're trying to maximize that medium of money, which, you know, the reason why they did that is so as to lead a good life, happy life, but they never, they, they kind of lost sight of that end goal. You know, they, they focused on the medium goal. Um, so that's the idea. So I think that, why do you want these likes in the first place, right? Uh, I think that all of us uh, want to be respected by other people and that's a legitimate goal to have. You know, we want to be liked by other people. We want to be in great relationships. Uh, we want to have a sense of connectivity and so on. All of these are, you know, understandable, you know, justified uh, uh, for you to have those things. But if you become overly reliant on these kind of, you know, uh, these, these uh, really, I mean, at some level, non-diagnostic cues, like number of likes you get on Facebook, then there's a higher chance that you're actually setting yourself up for unhappiness and depression. Okay. So it can, can temporarily boost your happiness and make you miserable. <laughs> and if you get overly fixated on them, that becomes your life. And that's not very good. Um, this has been fascinating. Maybe you could um, sort of uh, end with maybe three steps listeners can take when they listen to this podcast to adapt to the change around them, be more happy. Um, how, how can listeners of this podcast benefit from your happiness research? Yeah. Um, you know, to some extent, I talked about some of these things earlier. So it's going to be a repetition, I think. I, I do think that it's very, very important for us to start nurturing a mindset of abundance. Um, at whatever level you are, you might already be very abundance oriented, uh, which is great, right? Um, and and uh, so you might think that, you know, I don't need to do anything more, but I do think that it's very important to kind of reaffirm it and um, become even more solidly grounded uh, in the abundance mindset. And certainly if you're scarcity minded, then um, I think that it's important to kind of shift uh, your perspectives to become more abundance-minded, not just because it makes you happier, but also because it actually makes you more likely to be successful in conventional terms. You're going to earn more money. You're going to have more um, success, uh, uh, promotions, etc. So I talked about three things that you can do, right? Maintaining the three th good things journal, seeking out abundance-minded people, avoiding the news. You can add some other things to it, going out into nature, for example. It turns out is a huge... Um, uh, affirmer and and reinforcer of the abundance mindset. Where can um, 
where can listeners find uh, your your courses, your uh, any information that they wish to pursue further? Yeah, so you know, I have a website. Uh, it's uh, happysmarts.com. Happy Smarts is one word with an S at the end of smart. Mm-hmm. So happysmarts.com. Um, you you you'll you'll see a link to my book, uh, to my courses, and so on. Okay, yeah. so that's what one-stop shop, so to speak, of, yes. of all things that I do. Um, and of course, you know, people can Google stuff. You know, I've given one TED talk, two TEDx talks, and a bunch of other talks as well. Um, so they can access that as well. Um, but back to your question on what can people do during COVID, you know, I do think that I want to end with this. I do think that it's very, very important to recognize that we're going through a lot of stress and anxiety. And so recognize you're not alone. Go easy on yourself during this period. This too shall pass. And so have that faith that if you hang in there and get through this, things are going to improve. So um, have that confidence, have that resilience and optimism. And in the meanwhile, uh, take care of yourself health-wise, you know, so physically get exercise, uh, eat well, sleep well. Um, uh, This has provided lots of opportunities as well, right? I mean, you have a little more free time. So maybe you can spend that time bonding with your family, uh, pursuing a hobby, for example, things like that. Work-wise, because this is a work-related podcast, I think it's very, very important to stay productive. You know, stay as productive as you can. Okay, uh, enjoy your small wins. You know, you may, might not be able to achieve the lofty goals that you could have achieved had it been business as usual. But uh, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't give yourself credit for achieving small wins. You know, if you set yourself the goal of working for three hours every day and you do that, okay, and in those three hours you achieve little things, okay, biting off little bits of a big project celebrate, you know, give yourself a pat on the back. Okay. Uh, So don't forget to do that because I think it's very, very important to remain confident, remain positive during this very, very tough time. And once um, you're able to get through this period with that confidence and optimism, then you'll be in a much, much better position when the world goes back to quote unquote normal. Thank you. This has been uh, extremely informative and very inspiring. Uh, Dr. Raj uh, Raghunathan, thank you so much. Thank you, Shobhana. 